Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our special guest from Jefferson City is a freshman representative... Shamed Dogan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's... It, it's Okay, continue. Cut that part. Yeah, I, I think we, we originally met uh, Representative Dogan at uh, Stay Tuned, right? Yes, we were, that's we right. We were all on the Stay Tuned show. Yeah, on Channel 9, our neighbor next door. And I want to give a shout-out to Marshall Griffin, our Jefferson City correspondent, yes. who is the one handling the tech stuff on this end and yes. is graciously uh, helping us out today. Yes, shout-out to Marshall Griffin. Well, I just wanted to, since you guys met uh, Representative Dogan, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, I, I'm— proud to say that I've known Representative Dogan for a lot longer than that. I think I first encountered him in 2008 at Lincoln Days. So That's right. He is a, a hardcore veteran of the Republican <laughs> political scene, so to speak. Yes. So b- before this, you you were a council member in Baldwin, correct? Right. What, what's sort of your background and, and how did you get into that position? Well, uh, my initial involvement in politics, right after I graduated from college, I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked on a whole bunch of Republican efforts, Um, ended up working for the senatorial committee there, which helped us take back the majority in 2002. Then I worked for Jim Talent as a legislative assistant, um, which was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I moved back to Missouri and uh, ran for office eventually in 2008. And uh, that was an exciting experience, uh, one that was um, informative, obviously. I ended up learning a lot of lessons from losing, as most people do. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because uh, for our listeners, Representative Dogan ran in 2008. I, how many people were in that primary? Two or three or four? I, three. I don't, three. It was a three-way primary. The winner was rep, who, the current representative, Andrew Koenig, um, what did you learn from that race? Because a lot of times, sometimes people lose state legislative elections and they kind of fade into the ether. You didn't really do that. You kind of transitioned from running to that race to kind of going to local office and then coming back to state office. What did you kind of learn from that experience? Well, I definitely learned a lot about the value of knocking on doors and of grassroots work. Uh, because when I ran that time, people always had told me that what was really important in politics was raising a lot of money. So I did that. I outraised both of my opponents and still lost. Um, so this time around, I decided that I would really focus heavily on getting to know people one-on-one and not as much on the fundraising. And uh, obviously that led to success this time around. Now, one real, real quick thing for our listeners. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in West County? I grew up in North St. Louis County, um, okay. in Northwoods. Charlie Dooley was my mayor growing up. And where did you go to high school? <laughs> I went to MICDS. Okay. <laughs> is it true that you, I, I think I read this on Facebook a while ago, but is it true that you and uh, current county councilman Mark Harder like lived a block of away from each other without knowing it? We lived on the exact same block in Northwoods, <laughs> just a few doors down from each other. Um, he's a little bit of an older vintage than I am, so we didn't exactly know each other. But uh, it's a really small world to end up growing up on the same street and then uh, working in the city of Baldwin representing the exact same ward. Yeah, that's just a crazy coincidence right there because not only were both of you working on the Baldwin 
board of aldermen at the same time, but you both got elected to something else on the exact same day. So right. the synchronicity there is just phenomenal. So um, what did what did you kind of learn from being on the board of aldermen in, in Baldwin? It's one of the bigger municipalities, and local government tends to touch ordinary citizens a lot closer sometimes than even state legislation or state legislative work. What were kind of your, your takeaways from your experience as an alderman? Well, really, uh, some of the same things that I learned from that first campaign, which is just staying close to the people you represent, making sure that my door was always open to them, that they had my contact information if they ever had any issues. Thankfully, Baldwin is such a well-run city and such a, uh, uh, I think, a city where people are of means and don't need the same kind of services from the government that some folks in the St. Louis city do. Um, but just really that constituent service level was what, what I really learned the most. Yeah. So then flash forward to last year, you're in another three-way primary, um, which includes the wife of the former state representative for the district, Ray Schorenhorst. I may have mispronounced that name. It's a hard name to pronounce. And it was a not so nice race from what I've read. It got kind of nasty between you and 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 Ray Shorenhorst, but you ended up winning pretty decisively. In fact, I think she got third place pretty distantly. What was kind of your experience from that contest, especially compared to 2008? Well, it was a similar situation with a three-way primary. Um, this time I was running, as you mentioned, against the incumbent's wife, which was a little awkward, to be honest. But um, I just really focused on my race. And as you mentioned, it did get a little bit negative at the end. They ran some negative mailers against me, and I had to make a choice of whether to really respond to it or to respond in kind, I guess I should say, or just to kind of focus on my themes. And I really just I responded to the allegations but stayed focused on my themes, which were primarily fighting against Obamacare, fighting against big government, and uh, making sure that we have accountability and uh, ethics in government. So I think that message was a winning one. And at this point, um, how do you see things shaping up in the General Assembly now that you're there? And and any comparisons between being in the General Assembly and your previous job in Yeah, ca- well, in there's, definitely, there's definitely a lot of continuity in terms of the ethics issues. Um, I think there's a lot of skepticism of people across the state, whether you're talking about um, people on our side of the state, people in Kansas City, all over the state, people are very skeptical of government. People have lost trust in government at all levels. Um, And so I think I'm really going to be focused uh, this first term on ethics reform because we have to restore people's trust and we have to get them uh, to believe that um, what we're doing is on the up and up. If if they don't have that basic trust in you, then they're not going to be with you on any other issues if they think you're dirty. And I think you are a co-sponsor of a bill with Representative Jay Barnes that has to do with the revolving door, right? That's right. Um, And that's something that even in Washington, D.C., right, where things are all messed up, they have a prohibition on on lawmakers becoming lobbyists right afterwards. And we don't have that in Missouri right now, which I think is a travesty. So I'd like to see that changed. There's some other things that I'd like to do in terms of the gifts. Um, I think having unlimited gifts from lobbyists to legislators is a bad idea. So I'd like to see what comes out of the House and out of the Senate in terms of putting restrictions on those. And then I'm actually going to be filing my first bill next week to increase transparency and accountability on the local government level. Um, I would like for 
the gifts there to be reduced as well, because I think a lot of people don't realize that it's pretty much the wild, wild west in terms of gifts on the local level, the same way it is here in Jefferson City. Yes. For, for those of you who aren't aware, it's about $900,000 to a million dollars that lobbyists are giving in gifts to uh, state lawmakers. But and, and those are the gifts that we track on lobbyingmissouri.org, which keeps track of all of those. But we don't we don't keep track of these local gifts uh, to local politicians, which is what the representative is talking now, about. Now, the big question. You really can't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can't. But but what you're saying is you should. Right. Oh, I'm right. saying I'm saying we don't. But we should. Yes. Well, that was going to be my next question. Since you become a state legislator, or lobbyists like showering you with gifts. Are you going to like fancy meals and, and sports games in the <laughs> two or three weeks that you've been in office so far? I've been doing I've been invited to a lot of things. And of course, with a schedule like the ones we run up here, you can't go to everything. Uh, but I have had some introductions to uh, some of the key lobbyists here um, and learned a lot about their issues and about other issues that citizens have brought before me. So I really feel like I'm just a sponge soaking up all this information. Yeah. Well, that was, I do have a question on the revolving door aspect because there was an article in the Kansas City Star today that mentioned how one of the problems with the the cooling off period in D.C. is, yes, there's two years before you can become a lobbyist, but a lot of former lawmakers get around that by just being hired by a company as a quote-unquote advisor. Yeah, or a consultant. Or a consultant. Uh-huh. They don't actually do lobbying. And then, but it, for, for all intents and purposes, they're kind of doing the same thing without essentially lobbying. How do you kind of get around that? Or is that just something that's impossible to kind of get around based That's on a good question. Um, I think that's something I'll have to work with my colleagues on. Yeah. Uh, because you really want to tighten things up so that you don't have those types of loopholes. But then again, you, you don't want to say, you know, former lawmakers cannot come within a 30-mile radius of Jefferson City. You know, that's not going to be reasonable. Yeah, especially so. if they live there. Then they would, be <laughs> de- they would have to live, I guess, in Holt Summit or, you know. Now, I know there's, been, there's a variety of different ethics bills that, are, that have been inter- introduced. And there's at least one um, that also focuses on some of these uh, Committees, they're technically not campaign committees, although they act like it uh, in many of the cases, and they're called 501c4s. And there's a number of Republican ones. There's also several prominent Democratic ones. Um, right? They do not have to identify their donors. There has mm-hmm. been an effort by at least one of your colleagues, uh, Caleb Rowden, in his bill to require that they be identi- that their donors be identified if they spend more than a particular percentage on political activities. And uh, Attorney General Chris Coster has also mentioned it. Now, there are members of the committees say that it's illegal to monitor their donors. I'm just interested in what your take is on that. Is there even much discussion about this in Jefferson City right now? I really haven't been a part of those discussions just yet in detail. I've heard a little bit of the arguments on each side, and I haven't you know, quite made up my mind just yet. Um, I can kind of see the points that both sides are making. So I'm just going to stay tuned and listen to that debate as it develops. What about campaign finance limits, which seems to be the issue du jour among some Democrats, not all, like Attorney General Chris Coster, who opposes them? Do you think that that has any chance of passing the legislature, given the Republican composition? It it sounds doubtful. Um, I think people are more focused on the lobbyist gifts than on the contribution limits. 
because the contributions are out there in the open. If they're large contributions, they have to be disclosed immediately. Um, I think that system works just fine. If you, if you end up trying to put those limits on it, we'll be back to the old days where people will just form lots and lots of packs and distribute the money that way. Yeah, which happens in D.C. all the time, and which happened uh, in 2007 with Rex Sinkfeld, who started, I guess, what, 50 or 100 packs to Over kind of get around packs. it. So it has happened before here. So, so going back to the, the local ethics reform and, and local lobbyist gifts, it's my understanding that it, it was sort of your background in, in Baldwin that inspired that bill. <clears throat> what happened was that we had a no-bid trash contract that was presented to our board, and our city administrator who presented that contract um, was really pushing for the company because we dealt with the same company, um, and it was Allied Waste at the time. Um, now it's Republic Services. Um, they'd had a no-bid deal with the city of Baldwin for over 20 years, so nobody else had had a chance to put a bid before us in that long, and I was just on the basic free market principles saying that we ought to you know, wait a couple of years before the contract actually expired and take bids for it. And I ended up losing that battle and then found out later that the city administrator had taken World Series tickets from this company. And I really started digging into the state laws around that because I couldn't believe that you could take something of that kind of a value and not even have to, he didn't have to disclose it. And I found out that there's all kinds of gifts at the local level that people will make to a city manager or a city administrator. They don't even have to give it to the members of the Board of Aldermen or the city council. Right, so they just because, go to that person. Yeah, because the in, in Baldwin's case, the city manager is probably more powerful than the mayor or any of the aldermen because he runs the day-to-day operations of the city. Yes. Right. So. And I talked to my colleagues from other cities and really got informed on how often this practice occurs. Um, and that's why I filed legislation to reduce the uh, amount that they can take from $500 uh, per transaction, which they can do now without any disclosure whatsoever, and 5000 per year. I want to reduce that to 250 per transaction and $2,500 per year. All right. We'll be, we'll be tracking that bill for sure. Another thing I wanted to talk with you about, and this is partially because I actually talked with you about this last year, is it's kind of the, the mini effort that's going on in, in the legislature to either curtail or make it easier to curtail or dissolve municipalities. And this is an issue that I think is kind of special to St. Louis County, which has 90 municipalities. There mm-hmm. has been uh, some people on both sides of the aisle that say, you know, St. Louis County is too fragmented, that they want to figure out some mechanism to make it less municipal rich, so to speak. But you were one of the people on the board of Alderman Baldwin who, you know, created a, uh, I guess we're, we're at least in favor of a resolution against a city-county merger. And a lot of times when you talk about city-county merger, consolidation with municipalities goes hand in hand. And, you know, since that time, especially after the Michael Brown situation, um, the municipal structure of St. Louis County has gained a lot more attention there's been a bill to basically flat out abolish like two dozen bil- uh, villages in St. Louis County. We had Speaker Deal on a couple of months ago who basically wants to put forward a bill to make it easier to dissolve certain municipalities. Coming from a perspective of a former municipal official, what has kind of been your sense so far of some legislative activity around this issue? And do you think that, you know, there's traction to, to try and redu- you know change the structure of St. Louis County, or do you think it's going to come into opposition? 
I think there's definitely a lot of support uh, up here for that. Um, I'm also a member of the Legislative Black Caucus. I'm currently the only Republican member of that caucus. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's been a little back and forth, but some support it, some oppose it, uh, because there's an issue of whether or not it would dilute some of the political power up in those North County municipalities. But uh, from my perspective, I just really think that duplicative governments um, when we have 90-something municipalities in St. Louis County, some of them are basically 500 people in a, in a, a you know, a police uh, road trap. Um, I just think that's not serving those people well. Um, I think you can consolidate a lot of those governments and save those taxpayers money and eliminate some hassle from their lives when their police forces are there for revenue collection instead of public safety. Do you think that some opposition among the Black Caucus in in the legislature may be emanating from the local officials that they represent because I cover the St. Louis County Council weekly and I, I've talked with many of the mayors of some of the smaller North County towns and they're obviously opposed to any effort that would make it easier for their cities to disappear. Do you think that might be what's driving some opposition since many of the smaller municipalities are kind of grouped in North, North St. Louis County, which is predominantly African-American? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, I grew up next to a lot of these little municipalities where you drive down Natural Bridge Road and you can run into 10 of them in five minutes, you know. Um, and sure, I, I feel sorry for those people who would lose their position as a mayor or a council person. But um, again, you got to look at what's best for their residents, uh, not just for those elected officials. Just to kind of play devil's advocate, why should, you know, why should, for example, a town that I'm just going to throw out a town. I'm not trying to pick on them, but, you know, Velda Village Hills or Cool Valley or Greendale have any less of a right to exist than a city like Baldwin, for example. Is it just that they're just too small to be viable municipalities and Baldwin has, you know, greater efficiencies of scale because of its population? Or or do you think that, you know, it's not, it, it, you, have to, you can't really compare that the, the situations there. Well, they're, they're small enough that there's questions about whether a lot of these municipalities are violating the Max Creek law currently. Um, if they don't have enough of a tax base as a municipality to afford to pay for city services, guess what? They're going to have to get it from people from the outside. They're going to have to get it through their police departments. And again, I just don't like the idea of police departments being used in that way where they're primarily focusing on traffic tickets and other modes of revenue collection rather than protecting and serving and keep, keeping people safe from crime. Now, how interested are other members of the legislature, particularly in outstate Missouri, in this type of discussion? Although we mainly focus on St. Louis County, in fact, there would be a number of rural communities that potentially could be affected depending on how the legislation was crafted. What what sort of uh, mm -hmm. uh, impact have you been getting from other legislators about this? I think that people are open to it. Um, I haven't really talked to a lot of the rural people to see what the effects on their um, cities might be. Um, that's not who we're going after in this, um, I, I don't think, unless they're in that same kind of situation where maybe they could do some consolidation in their areas too. I'm just not as up on those issues. But um, I just think from a good government perspective, um, having too many governments out there is a bad thing. Now, kind of broadening it out a little bit, I mean, the, the fragmentation question or the structure question is kind of one element of the greater debate over 
what to do in response to Ferguson and Michael Brown. Other things that have been brought up is municipal court changes of lowering the Max Creek threshold of, um, you know, requiring body cameras, of changing special prosecutor's law, changing the use of force law. What's kind of your view on some of these other issues that would potentially impact municipalities, you know, in St. Louis County and elsewhere? What do you kind of like? What do you kind of dislike? And where do you think the debate is going to take us over the next few weeks and months? Well, um, I've been a supporter of body cameras at the municipal level. I thought that we should have had at least a pilot program for them in Baldwin. Um, I think the issue with body cameras statewide is going to be the funding. How do you pay for it, one? And uh, two, there's just some general concern about um, mandates coming down from the state onto every single police department in the state. Um, as, I have, as I've talked to my colleagues, I've kind of heard those objections. So I think those are going to be some pretty big hurdles to overcome. Uh, but I would still like to have um, some sort of state support for body cameras, because I think that if we'd had them in place in Ferguson, you know, it wouldn't have been the issue that it turned out to be. Um, I also would like to do something in terms of a special prosecutor or some kind of a board to investigate uh, police-involved deaths, Um, because I think when you look around the country, when police are involved in these types of incidents, whether or not it's justified um, their, their killings of citizens, Um, The underlying problem is the fact that police are almost never brought to a trial um, and the instances of them being found guilty of anything are even smaller than that. Um, And so I think you have to question whether our police are 100% perfect. Are they always good shots? Are they always doing these things in a justified manner? Or is there maybe a problem in the way that we investigate police when these incidents do occur? And I definitely think it's the latter. I'm not saying police are all bad or anything like that. I'm just saying that we need to have somebody else to investigate these incidents when they occur so that they're held accountable when they do do the wrong thing. Now, many Republicans in the area have been resistant to that idea and, um, in fact, have made a point, this includes some of the congressional Republicans, of trying to uh, emphasize their close relationships with police or they have come out and defended Bob McCullough, who's the county prosecutor in St. Louis County. He's a Democrat, but he's very popular with many Republicans. As a Republican yourself, how do you deal with that, the fact that many in your own party you're dealing with don't necessarily share your point of view on that? And have there been discussions within the party on that? Or is this going to be a case where you're going to have to side with some Democrats on it? Uh, This is something where I think it's a non... It shouldn't be a partisan issue, right, Um, when we're talking about government taking the lives of its citizens, um, that to me is one of the most serious things that we can ask um, an official of the government to do. And so we'd better get it right. We got to make sure we have procedures in place to get it right, whether you're talking about officer-involved shootings, whether you're talking about the death penalty. Um, I think that's going to be something that um, maybe not a lot of Republicans are going to share my views on them, but um, I, I just think that if I'm going to be a member of a party that says that government's uh, too intrusive in our lives and yet not to hold government accountable when it takes our lives, literally, um, that, that's just something that I want to apply those principles to as well. And it's my understanding that you're also interested in some other criminal justice reforms, uh, especially pertaining to marijuana, right? That's right, um, because there is a uh, man who has been sitting in prison Um, in state prison for over 20 years, uh, Jeff Mazansky, and his only offenses, he's been caught on three occasions for either selling or using marijuana. 
and he received a life without the possibility of parole sentence. And he's already served 20 plus years. We're, we're incarcerating him at a rate of 20,000 plus per year. So we've already spent close to half a million dollars incarcerating this man over marijuana offenses. And I just think that's ludicrous. It doesn't make sense from a justice standpoint. One of these offenses where he was caught uh, selling, the other person who sold got 10 years and was released long ago. And he's still languishing in prison. Um, he's 61 years old, I believe. He has grandchildren he hasn't seen. He has great-grandchildren at this point now. Um, he's not going to be a threat to society. He's not going to go out and sell drugs again. Um, so I'd like for either the government, for the governor to grant him clemency to release him, or I'm looking at filing a bill uh, legislatively to require anyone in that circumstance who is serving a life without parole sentence for marijuana offenses to be released. Well, beyond beyond this specific instance, what what are your thoughts on our current marijuana laws and sort of the war on drugs right now? Well, I mean, I think it's especially a travesty when you look at the fact that we uh, passed a, a criminal code revision, which reduced some of those uh, sentences for marijuana offenses, which I think was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, marijuana shouldn't be treated more harshly than drugs like meth, for example. Um, people shouldn't spend more time in jail for marijuana than they do for robbery or for violent crimes. Um, it's a nonviolent crime. Um, you know, if you're going to have it criminal, this, the punishments should fit the crime. And I just think that um, the lesser that we treat it as a, as a crime, um, the lower the sentences we get, the better outcomes we're going to have uh, because we won't be filling up our prisons uh, the way they are right now with people who are uh, people who've been convicted of a relatively petty crime, which is completely legal in some other places in the United States. That was going to be my, my next question. What I've kind of noticed over the last 10 years or so is there seems to have been this shift in mentality, not only among Democrats, because, you know, for a long time, you know, centrist Democrats were, were for harsh drug laws. But there seems to be kind of this this burgeoning movement among libertarian-minded Republicans to kind of change marijuana laws um, in maybe the way that you would you just explained before. Do you kind of sense there's a shift in your party in perception to, on this issue, or do you still think that there's a long way to go, given that you know there's still this maybe tough on crime mentality within the GOP? There's there's definitely been a shift. I think we've gone from being tough on crime to hopefully being smart on crime, which is to say that people who are convicted of violent crimes um, definitely um, should be sentenced to long, uh, long terms in jail. People who've committed crimes with guns, who are repeat felons, um, they're the ones who are causing uh, the recent crime wave in St. Louis City. Um, those people need to be locked up before they can commit more violent crimes. But when you're talking about nonviolent crimes, uh, drug crimes especially, where to me, I think uh, marijuana use is a victimless crime. Um, I just don't see any reason uh, to be incarcerating people for that. Uh, separate from the legalization question, um, I definitely think it ought to be decriminalized. Um, it's just a bad way to be spending that $20,000 a year in incarceration on people who've uh, used drugs rather than on people who have DWIs or people who are robbers or rapists or who commit other kind of violent crimes that have much more detrimental effect on our society. Now, when you initially proposed this uh, some weeks back, there appeared to be a, somewhat of a uh, 
bit of a furor within the Republican ranks. Has that sort of died down, even if they disagree with you? Uh, just, I mean, how receptive are people in the General Assembly even discussing this? I think people are getting a little bit more open about discussing it, um, even if they don't agree with um, legalization, which I don't think there's a ton of support for outright legalization at this time. Um, and I even haven't gone that far. Um, I think that people are open to certainly reducing um, penalties for drug use. Um, people are open to looking at people who are currently serving time. And my gosh, these people aren't a threat to us. Uh, can we release some of these people? Um, so do you want a shorter sentence or do you want to decriminalize, which is different than legalize? Right. Um, what's your, I mean, how far are you willing to go on this? Um, that'll remain to be seen. I haven't really hashed out um, all the all the nuances of it um, and really talked about what's politically possible, but um, I, I certainly, again, think it's a victimless crime and that it's something that we shouldn't be giving people long sentences uh, for, um, even if it is going to be even if it is going to remain criminalized. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned, I think, 10 or 15 minutes ago that you have decided to join the Black Caucus. I guess you're the only Republican member of that caucus because you're the only African-American Republican. I'm curious what your reception has been in that caucus and what you kind of bring to that 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 group of legislators. Um, they've uh, welcomed me with pretty open arms. Um, I think the people in the Missouri Black Caucus um, as, as a whole are generally more receptive to Republicans than the National Black Caucus, mostly out of necessity. When you're in a super minority <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the House and the Senate, you know, you really have to be able to work with Republicans. Um, so that's nothing new to the other members of the Black Caucus, um, having people who they disagree with, um, you know, having to deal with them all the time. But yeah, I was just going to say, one of the one of the long-running themes within Missouri legislative politics is some African-American Democrats have been more pragmatic than others. And by pragmatic, I mean they've been more willing to work with Republicans because there's the Democrats are so deep within the minority now that if you don't be if you're not pragmatic, then you're kind of irrelevant in a sense. So that kind of goes part and parcel with what you said. Right. So. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm just curious about I mean, you, you hold a unique position uh, within the General Assembly. And how has that affected other things that you deal with? Um, because th there are a there have been uh, African-American Republicans in Missouri legislature before, but not many. Mm -hmm. And just I, I'm just interested in your take on how you're treated by your Republican colleagues as well as, you know, the Democrats. It's it's been the same. I mean, I've been in the Republican Party for a long time. I've very rarely faced anybody who made any kind of ignorant comments to me or who held, you know, my race against me or anything like that. Um, and certainly at this level of politics, I don't think there's anybody who holds those type of feelings. Um, yeah. You know, it's going to put me in a different position in terms of my perspective, in terms of my life experiences that I bring to the Republican caucus. Um, when you talk about um, issues of uh, police, you know, I've been very fortunate not to have quite as negative experiences um, with police officers as other African-Americans, but I've had a few of them. Um, and that informs my thinking about uh, the way that police treat members of the black community. Um, you know, it's like if I've had those experiences with 
um, you know, usually being dressed in a suit and never having any kind of criminal record, I can only imagine what they do to people who are um, not from that kind of situation, people who are, you know, dressed in baggy jeans and, um, you know, who fit the kind of stereotype of a, a quote-unquote suspect a lot more. Um, and the people I know who've had those type of interactions uh, with the police, that really, really, um, you know, the, the way that I think Republicans feel about the federal government in terms of it always breathing down their neck is the same way that people in the African-American community feel about um, local law enforcement oftentimes. And I just think that if you could get more sympathy from both sides uh, to the other, that would really help our state to, to heal some of these issues dealing with Ferguson and uh, just help people to see how other people perceive the world a lot better. Okay, one final question, and it's kind of politically based. I'm not going to use the putting the politically and politically speaking or anything like that because that's just a terrible, terrible pun. Um, well, you're used to ter- terrible puns. <laughs> I'm terrible puns. So it, in an alternate universe, you would be term limited right now or going, in, I guess, to your last term, and there would be an open Senate seat. Do you have any interest in running for the Senate seat that's uh, held by Eric Schmidt right now, or are you just going to basically spend – focus on running for re-election in the House the next three three terms. Well, I am very grateful that we have uh, Republicans lined up, it seems, to uh, run for that seat. Um, Andrew Koenig is announced that he's running. Um, Rick Stream, I believe his name has been talked about. Yes. Mike Lira has announced. Yes. Um, I really don't want to add my name to that mix. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I can right. just focus See, on trying to do the best job I can as a representative and watch the, watch the circus. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, usually I ask, like, are you the, uh, the question on politically speaking, are you running for Office X? And a lot of people are cagey. That is the most direct answer I've gotten in a while. And I, I appreciate your candor. So oh, one real quick thing. What did you learn from Jim Talent? Because you worked for Jim Talent for a while. Is there anything that has helped you in your politi- political career because you worked with him? Yeah, Jim's just such a down to earth guy, um, despite his fancy degrees and Um, often being the brightest guy in the room. He was never one of those people who had to tell you he was the brightest guy in the room. Um, And he was always really great at communicating his ideas um, to people who didn't necessarily agree with him and getting them on board with causes that they wouldn't otherwise support. Um, So I hope that a little bit of that is rubbed off on me. Um, It's a skill. You know, I'm, I'm still learning a lot about the skills of persuasiveness and um, just hope I can do um, some fraction of what Jim was able to accomplish. And just to prove how fancy of a degree he had, he has a law degree from the University of Chicago, which is the alma mater of both of my sisters in law. So very, very, <laughs> very fancy, fancy university. All right. I will close this out here. Um, actually, if you're interested in reading more about the Jeff Mazansky story, I know that the Riverfront Times has really been all over that. Uh, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Uh, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, just like Melissa Joan Hart does, you can follow me at at C.S. McDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. At Clarissa Explains It All. No, <laughs> at J. Rosenbaum. And Joe? At J. Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And Representative, are you on, are you on Twitter? I am. It is at Dogan, the number four rep. Very good. Well, we will be back next week. Until then, so long.